if his death end up changing the world for the better, and I think it will, then he died as he lived. It is on you to make sure his death is not in vain. The death of George Floyd three weeks ago at the hands of the Minneapolis police sparked a fresh wave of Black Lives Matter protests across the world. We're fighting for justice. We're fighting for right and wrong. In the US, calls to defund the police have won victories, and across Europe, leaders are taking down statues of slave traders and reviewing national school curricula. Here in the UK, hundreds of thousands have taken to the streets, despite government warnings and coronavirus restrictions. Over the last week, we've seen the largest anti-racist protests in British history. It is a moment, and it is a movement, and it is just... What is happening right now is 400 years of pain is rising to the surface of our society. So, why has this explosion of protest happened now? Does this mark a new moment in our collective conversation on race, racism and the role of the police? And once this moment of the whirlwind passes, how can protesters make sure we achieve lasting change? It feels like there's a desire for change in the air. Will it actually happen? This moment holds possibilities for change that we've never before experienced. It hasn't ended the problem, and so we need to even continue this conversation beyond this to find some real solutions. We're back for a very special episode of the Weekly Economics Podcast, where we'll be diving into these questions and more. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, recording this podcast from my house. Stay with us. So for this one-off super special episode, we're really excited to be joined down the line by Gary Young. He's a writer, broadcaster and professor of sociology at the University of Manchester. Hi, Gary. Hi there. Lovely to have you back with us. So we're going to dive straight in. So as I said at the top, this seems to be an unprecedented moment for the black liberation movement across the globe, really, but especially in the uh, West. So I wanted to start with asking, why do you think this explosion of anti-racist protest has happened now? Well, the truth is, I don't know. I don't know what it is about now. The kind of alchemy that comes together to make one death particularly totemic while others aren't. What happened to George Floyd was brutal, but sadly not rare, apart from in its kind of the specifics of its brutality that were caught on film. And so the confluence of things that make it now as opposed to last year or next year, I couldn't really say. I do think that there is a, a kind of accumulated effect to these things. As someone said in Baltimore during the rebellions following Mike Brown and Ferguson, there's only so much you can put in a pressure cooker before it's going to pop. And that we are 12 years out of an economic crisis that affected African-Americans and black Britons and poor people around the world, and we're overrepresented among poor people more heavily than other people, that we're in the middle of a pandemic that is disproportionately affecting poor people and therefore black people. And we have both in America and Britain, but not exclusively, but certainly America, Britain, Brazil, we have these very right-wing governments who in different ways have 
a proven disregard for black people and have openly stoked and galvanised racism. Elsewhere, fascism is a mainstream ideology in Europe. So you can see that there's a lot of oil on the floor waiting for a spark. Why was this spark as opposed to another spark? I honestly couldn't say. But this was an explosion that's been a long time in the making and it was waiting to happen. Mm. So let's, yeah, let's dive in a little bit to the thing you raised, the relationship between the protests here in the UK and overseas in the US. So Matt Hancock has said that the UK protests were in response to events in America and that the UK is one of the most open and tolerant societies in the world. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the relationship between the US and the UK in particular around race, because I know that obviously you've lived and reported from both places. So in your opinion, why does general British understanding of anti-black racism kind of tend to revolve around events in America? And what does anti-black racism look like here in the UK? So, I mean, he was right in the first bit. It was initially a response to that, but it wasn't only that. And one has to start from a broader thing that has nothing to do with race, which is just that America is a bigger, more powerful country. It's the centre. We are the periphery. And so in a range of ways, we always know more about America than they know about us. Most people listening to this podcast know who the president of America is. They also know who the democratic challenger is. If you took our equivalents in America, they probably know who the Prime Minister of Britain is. They almost certainly wouldn't know who the leader of the opposition is. And then it can elide quite easily into our kind of racial conversations. America has a significant black middle class. It has a critical mass of people, a significant amount of wealth, and therefore it reaches us in a way that the experiences of black people in Holland or Belgium or Portugal, where there are many, just don't reach us, or actually even from the Caribbean or Africa, which don't have the same cultural and political economy. So there is that. Then I think among a certain kind of liberal white person in Britain and the rest of Europe, race peculiarly gives them a kind of space to feel morally superior. America has material, military, economic superiority for a certain kind of white European who not so long ago, historically, was top dog, was the centre, and America was a periphery. Race is one of those areas where white Europeans think we are better than them. Now, Some of that comes from a discernible, ill-informed place, I think, which is that our civil rights movement, our segregation, our slavery, most of the egregious forms of anti-black racism among particularly Western Europe took place abroad. And then there is a desire, I feel, among black Britons for a boomerang effect, which is that Stories of American atrocities reach us in a way that stories of British racial atrocities don't, peculiarly. Not all of them, but the biggest ones. If we throw that boomerang, there's a hope that it might come back, that we start with that, the thing that they know, and then we say, but you know what? Here are four or five other things that I've been trying to get your attention about that have happened here that you didn't notice you thought weren't important, that you thought was me whining. Well, they're kind of connected. As a story, they're connected. And 
the hope is that the boomerang will come back and hit someone in the head and then they will get just a flash of revelation. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. This time it seems that it has worked. Mm. On the um, New Statesman podcast, you talked about the kind of culture of violence in the UK and the US, and you mentioned that the US was more deadly, but not necessarily more violent for black people. You know, often in response to what you just said, people will say, well, you know, we saw this video of George Floyd being brutalized and murdered by the police, and it's just not that bad here. You know, British police don't do that to black people. So it'd be great to hear you kind of tease out this idea of kind of violent versus deadly. Well, first of all, they do do that here. <laughs> I know that you know that. This was not true. Secondly, the overarching point is that America is generally more lethal, not just for black people, just generally more lethal. More people get shot dead. You know, they have more guns. So even your suicide is more likely to be successful. People are generally more likely to be incarcerated there. They have execution there. So America is a more lethal country. And therefore, its racism is more lethal. Now, there are some people who like to travel on that better or worse axis. I think it's just a wrong direction of travel. Is it better to be racially oppressed here than there? What kind of question is that? It doesn't stand up to even the basis scrutiny. Like, well, black America has a significant black middle class. We don't. They have black institutions at Central Island. We don't. They've had a black president. We haven't had a... So you're more likely to be president and more likely to be murdered. Like, let's not do that. Let's kind of start from the basis that racism is evil and wrong and that in every country and every culture, it will express itself differently, that it's a very hardy virus and it adapts itself to the body politic that it's in. And so it's little comfort to Stephen Lawrence's parents that he was murdered in one way rather than another, or that the proportion of people who were murdered is this rather than that. It suggests, ultimately, that there's a level of racism that you should be content with. And so in the same way that I won't get into who ran the better empire, Britain or America, because that is not a conversation that is of much interest to the people who are catching hell from empire. I would rather talk about ending empire than saying, well, those people oppressed me in a nicer way than you did. So I think that's a conversation that people can have if they want. Just don't have it with me. At the end of that conversation, I'm still racially oppressed. <laughs> I have no joy in that. But the desire for that is overwhelming. That When I moved back to Britain from the States after reporting there for 12 years, I left in 2015. People said, is it because of the racism that you're leaving? And I thought, yeah, yeah, I'm going to hack me because I'm fleeing racism. Like, listen to yourself. But it speaks to a kind of an urgent desire for Europe, or in this case, Britain, to be better than America at something. And in this case, it's just different. That axis works for geography, but it also works for time. Is it better now than it was in the 70s? Well, in some ways it is and in some ways it isn't. 
Uh, yeah, I would definitely agree with that, you know, around the urgent desire for kind of British superiority complex. And also I think it is another cultural tool of obfuscation, right, of moving the conversation away from the issues of racial justice and towards a comparison or a kind of all lives matter-esque distraction. I wanted to ask a question specifically about that cultural piece, because what I've noticed in my work has been this whole idea of the kind of British stiff upper lip, British white middle class politeness seems to have a very direct direct dialectical relationship, I guess, with white fragility and with the kind of like silencing of conversations around race. And I'm wondering whether you, in comparing with the US, do you feel like white British people are less willing and less able to have these conversations than white Americans? I think Britain is less equipped for the reasons that I mentioned before. America had to internalise its segregation, its slavery, its kind of, that all happened there. After Katrina, even George Bush Junior has to say this country has a painful history of racial discrimination. And then they kind of pat it out and we're a great country and we always keep moving on and we're always better and better and all that kind of stuff. But that has to be part of it. And Trump would be the first president who kind of wouldn't probably acknowledge that. But that generally speaking, it's baked into the understanding. There was slavery, there was segregation. And then usually even your kind of hardiest Trumpier would say, yeah, but that's all in the past. But they would know it was in the past. Whereas in Britain, the relationship to slavery and segregation, because they happened abroad, it's kind of, there is a willful ignorance about where British racism comes from, where black people come from, what British history is. And it's willful because it's there in the kind of, let's put the great back into Great Britain. Well, how did it get there? Two world wars and one world cup. This notion that we were once a great nation without any understanding of whom that greatness was built on. And therefore a kind of pick and choose collective identity. So people will say, we won the World Cup, even though they didn't play. They'll say, we won the war, even if they didn't fight. But if you say, well, then we own slaves then. If we won the World Cup and we, well, no, that wasn't me. I didn't own anything. Yeah, you didn't play for England either. We all know 1066. We can't blame it on history. History is such a long time ago. Why are you bringing up old stuff? We know about 1066. We know that because it's important. That's so that's the last time that we were invaded, you know, Royal Britannia and all that kind of stuff. If you could know about 1066, then you could know about the persecution of the Mau Mau if you wanted. But they don't want to. And so we are left, black people are left, with the heavy lifting of both being among the poorest and the most likely to be stopped and searched and incarcerated and all of those things, and having to teach Britain its entire history. Because... They don't want to know it. Mm, and I mean, I think also, you know, Nadine Edelnani wrote a really great piece about this around Brexit time of what often happens also in those historical cultural erasures is then there is a kind of like latent nostalgia for empire that exists in people's consciousness that they're not necessarily overtly aware of that when they're given a lever to pull, you know, around, say, take back control of something, what is really activated there are these values of superiority, these values of exactly, as you say, a nostalgia for an oppressive past gone by that is not necessarily articulated through that lens because we don't have a national conversation about it but is very much enacted through it yeah the illusion of all that stiff upper lip stuff that's what makes it difficult not that these conversations are necessarily easy in america or places that are more honest but that's what makes it 
particularly difficult here is that first of all you have to tell people things they don't know so that you can actually start the conversation and that they should know but secondly there's a way in which people who are otherwise consider themselves educated find themselves at a loss you know to kind of account for how Britain got where it was how we as black people got where we are you know here it makes for very awkward and sometimes unedifying conversations because they either don't know or they don't want to know. Mm, Okay, I want to dive into the UK left a little bit. So in your recent work with the New Statesman, you talked about your frustrations with the UK left when it comes to the conversation around racial justice. And that really jumped out at me as that's definitely been my experience as well of being in, you know, rooms full of people who would definitely identify as strong thinkers, names, faces, speakers on the left, who when issues around racial justice, but intersectionality more generally, all these kind of things come up. The word that we hear a lot in those circles is it's divisive it's divisive or it's a distraction and those conversations are often shut down and I realized I think because I was looking into this because I kept hearing it I kept hearing it and I was like what do they mean and I, I was kind of doing some reading into 1970s British cultural studies and one of the ideas I came across was what I think all that's rooted in which is this belief that there is only class that class is the one true unifying fact that we all share as you know people who don't own the means of production and any further stratification along the lines of race or gender or any of those other things is dividing us from taking meaningful action with each other therefore we should just all focus on class and not have these silly kind of caucuses about how we feel about the other oppressions we face and I was like that makes sense I really (laughs) I understand now why I felt so terrible in those spaces I just wanted to throw that over to you and ask if you feel like the UK left has a problem with race I mean There's a great quote from a guy called Andy Copkind. Uh, He was writing in 68, and he said, however rebellious children may be, they have their parents' genes. American radicals are American. They cannot easily cross class lines to organise groups above or below their own station. They're caught in the same status traps as everyone else, even if they react self-consciously. And that's true for the British left. The British left has a problem with racism, because Britain has a problem with racism, and frankly, racism's a problem, so wherever it exists, it's always going to be a problem. And the specific problem that the British left has, which is different to the American left, first of all, it's the ignorance that I talked about before. If you haven't had an anti-colonial sensibility, if you haven't explored that, I'm thinking of the Orwell quote. He says, it's quite true that the English are hypocritical about their empire. In the working class, this hypocrisy takes the form of not knowing that the empire exists. And the left was complicit in that because it kind of makes everything harder. It makes conversation. If you're going to deal with racism, then you're going to go up against a numerical majority electorally. How's that going to work? And you're going to have to say, look, we're going to have to do things differently and so on. So the British left have always had a problem with it. And a more recent problem came with the explosion of narcissism in the 70s and the far right and a desire to have a kind of broad front which basically eliminated race as a category and a kind of highly reductive marxism that just said class class is everything class is and so you see people throwing around the term identity politics And you're like, what do you mean by that? I always just say to them, it's a bit like political correctness, where it means whatever you want it to mean as long as you don't like it. It's like identities in politics. People come to politics with something. And there is a notion that class is about material concerns. Well, being arrested and being threatened with murder is a material concern. 
if you can't marry the person that you love, that's a material concern. If you're being paid 83p to a man's pound, that's a material concern. If you're four times more likely to die of COVID than a white person, that is a material concern. It's literally life and death. And the notion from a certain sexual left is identity is just how you feel. You know, it's, it's Samosas and steel band and saris and people leveraging that into politics rather than understanding that it's in politics all the time. And that Marx said... Labour in the white skin can never free itself as long as labour in the black skin is branded. So even in the evocation of the great man himself, they kind of don't really get it quite right. And that this becomes particularly urgent because from the 80s, you see the kind of crushing of the organisations of the established working class in terms of unions. And you see a kind of fracturing of both what it means to be working class and of potential allies. So there are more people working in Indian restaurants than there are working in steel, coal and shipbuilding all put together. Now, steel, coal and shipbuilding, that was the fulcrum of the British working class. If they went, the whole system went. They could black out the country. We're in a different kind of economy we have a different kind of working class and the degree to which people on the left are interested in engaging with the potential of the working class is the degree to which they can understand that it's changed. Actually, I find that to some extent it's generational, but I still get asked quite often, you know, what's more important, race or class, or which comes first? And so they exist in silos as opposed to being two interdependent forces that can only be understood together or misunderstood separately. Mm. Okay, so you mentioned it there. Let's move on to talking about how the uprising for Black Liberation has intersected with the COVID-19 pandemic, particularly here. So you've written extensively in the New Statesman about how the pandemic is exposing broader inequalities to the extent that, quote, being black is a pre-existing condition. So can you talk about what you mean by that? What COVID appears to be illustrating in the disproportionate number of black Pakistani Bangladeshi people who are dying, is an entrenched systemic racism whereby nobody is going around and injecting us with COVID. There have been black people who've been spat on and died, but generally speaking, no one's deliberately walking around and licking our faces and making us sick. What's happening is that before COVID ever came, we were on the bottom of pretty much every pile, be it African Caribbeans, Africans, Pakistanis, Bangladeshis, depends on the power. And because we're in more cramped housing, often multi-generational, because we have to go to work, also because of patterns of migration, because of some of the work we do, because of lack of opportunities, because of other kinds of work we do, particularly public transport and nursing, Pakistani taxi drivers in certain areas, security guard work, particularly for uh, people of African, African, Caribbean descent, we are more vulnerable, we are more prone. And so we are dying at greater rates. And there is an awareness of that just because quite a lot of us are dying. And so people know someone who knows someone who's died. If you're black, you're more likely to know someone who's died or who's had it or who's struggling. Just sheer force of numbers. I don't know that I would want to draw any kind of causal connection 
between that and the broader moment that we're in, in terms of Black Lives Matter. But I do think that's a contextual one that's clear. You have the brazen brutality of the neck on the throat or the Lawrence murder or any of those things where people die in a moment of extreme and vile racism. And to some people, that is racism. That's it. That is what racism is. Bad people doing bad things to other people, sometimes in their mind, to good people, which is also awful, this notion that, well, it turns out he wasn't as good as all that, that maybe he had a previous record. It's like, yeah, well, even if he did have a record, the price for that is not state execution or any kind of execution. You have the most brazen form of racism, but actually it's kind of like an iceberg, and that is at the tippity-top of it. And that's not most people's experience of racism, isn't that? It's being shoved to the bottom of every pile. It's being rotated for the kind of, you know, least convenient things. It's not feeling that you can speak up in a certain moment. It's living in an area that either you don't think is safe or that is just poorly resourced. It's going to schools that are poorly resourced. It's kind of being turned down at an exceptional rate for a range of opportunities, even when you have done everything they've asked you to do and done well at school and gone to university. It's all of those things. And so there is this connection between the banal, that everyday racism that is faced in a range of ways and dealt with in a range of ways in black communities, that makes us more vulnerable to COVID-19. And there is a connection between that and the more brutal, more deadly, more lethal forms of racism that people often understand exclusively as being racism and actually broadening people's understanding of what we're talking about would help them understand how you get to that point in the first place. And the point I made in the New Statesman article is that there is a rhetorical connection between George Floyd, some of his last words, I, I, I can't breathe, and the experience of the pandemic patient on the ventilator who literally can't breathe, that in all sorts of ways we are struggling for the most basic thing, which is uh, oxygen. Mm. Okay, so let's move on from COVID because I want to have some time to talk about the movement uprising and some of the demands around it. First of all, I want to look at some of the demands that have emerged so far. We have defunding the police in there. We have campaigns around the history of the British Empire to become part of the curriculum. And then we also have Sadiq Khan calling on the Met Police to reconsider their use of stop and search and tasering. So kind of taking them systematically. Yeah, what are your thoughts on those as demands? And do you think they're viable? And what might they look like? First of all, the issue of viability is an important one in more ways than one. We shouldn't dismiss something just because it's not viable. When Martin Luther King gets up and says, I have a dream, it's not a viable dream. <laughs> I have a viable dream. It's less catchy. Yeah, I have a temporary plan to, you know, but it's quite important to be utopian in these moments and to speak honestly about what one thinks is necessary, not just what is possible, not least because two weeks ago we didn't think this moment was possible, so who knows what will be possible in two weeks' time. That said, defunding the police, I think, is a demand that's come from America, and I could be wrong. I'd be happy to be wrong. I don't know that there's a significant amount of work has been done on that here. 
there's a sufficient amount of political education to kind of know what that is and what that would look like. Yeah, I think on defunding the police in general, there has been, because some of my friends and colleagues organise in Minneapolis and have done for a long time. And the thing that they point out there in terms of that victory is that for decades, they've had organisations that have been invested in developing community alternatives to policing and advancing them to the council and the governments, such that when this moment arose, they had an alternative plan ready. I agree that I don't see that here. So I feel like that's an American demand that doesn't translate at the moment. Doesn't mean it couldn't. Doesn't mean we might not talk about it. The curriculum, that seems way overdue and necessary. Otherwise, it's like people walking in a film halfway through a film. And they're like, what just happened? I mean, I suppose we've made the case for that throughout this podcast so far, right? Yeah, we should be doing that anyway. In some places they are doing that. In places where they're not, they should be. It should be part of the national curriculum. I kind of think similarly with Stop and Search. Like, it's not new and it's not difficult to understand why the manner in which Stop and Search is used is a problem. It's actually self-defeating. In Scotland, when I did uh, work on knife crime, They said, one of the problems that you have in London is that the people with the information, the community to information, don't trust the police. And, you know, Stop and Search actually doesn't produce as many arrests as all that, whereas community information would. And so in Scotland, they've made, you know, big strides in life crime. So I think that we have the right to be both safe from crime and say from state harassment. I don't think that's too much to ask. And one of the things I do find galling in this moment, even as I think it's important to be generous and to embrace the things that are coming up, is it's not like I have anything new to say to Sadiq Khan. It's almost like for our humanity to be asserted, we first of all must die. It's not new. This is not difficult. And if that's all we get out of this moment, then it's not enough. Neither of those things are new demands, and neither of them cost any money, and neither of them should be in any way challenging to a place that is interested in anti-racism, let alone committed to it. So I feel like they are important and good and entirely insufficient, (laughs) given what's happened. Mm, So what's missing then? I mean, I know it's a bit of a crude question, but what should the UK Black Liberation Movement be demanding? What, What might be enough? I think there is a benefit in Britain in cementing the issues that have arisen over COVID, the broader issue of brutality, history, all of that stuff to look at how we've got here. They're like very vague. Specifically with COVID, I think we should be demanding a public inquiry into um, how we got here. That's not going to put food on anybody's table, but I think that's important. Because I think that that will expose a kind of far broader hole than um, the one that we've got. But I think we're moving quite quickly from this moment into a massive economic depression that's going to hit us hardest. It's going to hit black people hardest. There's no doubt about that. The last one hit us really hard. I think it was only a couple of months before COVID hit that wages emerged from the real equivalent of 2008. And here we are again. And so I think whatever demands are made will go beyond this moment to address the kind of hammering that we are about to experience. 
different way of saying that would be I don't know precisely what demands should be met. I don't know. But I do have a kind of clear idea that it will come out of the lived experience of a community that is in revolt at the moment and that for it to come out of that community, there is going to have to be some kind of gathering, some opening, some place, not geographical, particularly at the moment, for all the things that have been felt and said to sit and congregate and to establish what those priorities are. Okay, so yeah, that makes sense. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about this question of violence. We've touched on it once or twice, but you've drawn a connection in your writing between the violence of the riots, the violence of the police and the violence of our economic system. So could you expand on that a little bit? Well, yeah, I think that violence has to be understood in its context. And if you take the violence that has taken place in these rebellions, that, well, what is the context? Well, first of all, there is the context. There is a direct cause, which is state violence, the killing of George Floyd and of many others. Beyond that, there is a broader state violence, the incarceration, the executions, the stoppings, the searchings, the disproportionate arrests, the unreasonable, disproportionate sentencing, all of those things that take place in black communities in America. Then you have the economic violence, the violence that makes a black man in Washington, D.C. have a lower life expectancy than the man on the Gaza Strip, the violence that leaves so many people without health care, without housing, that delivers such developing world levels of infant mortality. And you have to ask yourself, what were the alternatives? What were the other options? Look at Colin Kaepernick and he took a knee. Well, that didn't work. Sometimes black people have voted in higher percentages than white people. They got a black president. You can't talk about black people not being involved in the political system, in the political structures, not trying other things, raising a fist, taking a knee, uh, lobbying, demonstrating. All of those things have been done. Nobody listened. So then what peace was there before? Yeah, peace for whom? People were being killed wantonly by the state. There were peaceful protests, nobody listened. So what was the nature of that peace? Let's say that there wasn't a violent response. Then how would we live? In what way is it possible to live in a Western state that claims to be a democracy when you don't know if your teenage kid can walk down a road without being murdered, where you might be murdered by the police at any moment. In what sense is that living in a state of peace? And then there has to be an acknowledgement that political violence is problematic, that the rage on the streets, well, you will never have the power of the American state. (laughs) You just won't. They've got tanks, they've got rocket launchers, they've got dirty bombs, they've got drones. Don't think that you will out-violence them because you won't. And it's often hyper-masculine. It can be very polarising. It's not equipped to solve the problem that it highlights. And so it shouldn't be fetishised. And then you have to look at, okay, the fires are burning down now. Well, what's the result been? Well, the whole world's looking at racism right now. The whole world is outraged at what happened. Minneapolis has disbanded its police force. There's been a shift in popular approval of Black Lives Matter. It has spread like a bushfire all over the globe, where it is now being translated into local contexts. Do not tell me that if Black people hadn't come out onto the streets and raised hell, that that would have happened, because it wouldn't. 
Now, the problem is that the people who riot are very rarely the people who actually benefit. That's historically true, that they create a black middle class. That I got my bursary from The Guardian following the 1985 and 1987 uprisings. I decided that we needed more black journalists. And, you know, it was a direct consequence of black people taking the streets, but it benefited me, it benefited them. Mm. If anything, they're the ones who often end up behind bars. So, Well, right, or police like they're in an occupied territory or just still poor. So it's not unproblematic. It shouldn't be fetishized. It should also not be condemned summarily. You have to look at the alternatives and you have to look at what has or hasn't been gained. And in this particular instance, it would be a hard argument to say you should have stayed at home. From what I've seen video-wise, in many of these cases, the violence wasn't started by the protesters anyway. been plenty of police riots. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I want to wrap up in a sec, but in the last answer you gave, you know, you talked about how some of the impacts of what's happening around the world at the moment are already being, I guess, baked in. They're already causing shifts in the public consciousness and perhaps kind of irreversible progress around racial justice. Would you say that there's more that we need to be doing to make sure what's happening now translates into lasting change above and beyond what we've discussed so far? Um, yeah, I'm not sure that they're irreversible, actually. I fear the worst. You know, I think in general terms, the left has done a good job of clearing space, but a bad job of keeping it the last 10 years. A lot of space has been cleared. But let's not forget how the last economic crisis went down. Everybody knew that the bankers had done it. Everybody knew that it was a financial crisis that was at the heart of a certain kind of caffeinated capitalism. And yet they managed to make the narrative about asylum seekers, refugees and public sector workers. So the degree to which these moments can be distorted should not be underestimated. I think it's all in play and that all of us in different ways have everything to fight for. And that we're in a moment now where we're kind of shifting, I hope, from symbols to substance. The statues, which is, you know, a great thing to get rid of Colston and other things, and they're symbolic. I think symbols are really important, so that doesn't denigrate them, but I don't think they should be mistaken for substance. The marches, which were showing anger and rage and so on, but now you have to do something with it. And I think the challenge of the moment is to, particularly under COVID, is to convene in whatever form makes sense with the purpose of thinking it was this huge explosion on the streets that made this moment possible. How do we attach ourselves to that moment? What does that moment say to me as a writer or as a worker or where I live or wherever it is, in whatever way that one seeks to convene? Because you're not going to be able to do it on your own not to leverage that moment for your own personal effect, but to think like, what connections can I make with the issues that have been raised and the people that were raising them? Because that's what's going to keep it going. Not the will. The will itself is there. Not the themes, because the themes are never ending. But the capacity to kind of create some connective tissue between the energising, exhilarating, somewhat chaotic, urgent, moment that we're leaving and the more protracted moment that we're entering and that's that we gather in whatever way that we can to talk about what we need to do next to talk about what are our priorities now i'll give you an example and it's an example of why i kind of 
um, squeamish about saying, we should do this, let's go here. I lived in Scotland as a student and there was a Lothian Black Forum which was created in protest at the racist murder of an asylum seeker, Ahmed Sheikh. The Black Forum kind of existed for, I don't know, three, four years, did wonderful work, organised marches, convened, got people together. And then there was a kind of, okay, let's almost form working groups, let's do our own thing. A group of us decided that it would be good to do some youth work with young black kids. It ended up being a toddler's group for mainly mixed-race kids and their white mums. Now, you can only know that by doing it. It's the action that makes the kind of work real. And because this moment exists on such a huge landscape, Black Lives Matter, well, that means health, education, housing, policing, it means everything, art, culture, everything. How we go from that notion to what next is the product of an engagement. And that's what we need now, is to engage. We've demonstrated, we've protested, we have taken down, there's a range of things that we've done. And to take it forward, we have to kind of think, well, okay, that was what that moment demanded of us. Now, what do we demand of this moment? Let's figure it out. Gosh, okay. Yeah, I mean, I think that the one thing that I would add to that from my vantage point is we need to also be thinking about how we not only kind of assemble in the way that you just elucidated, but how we make the links really explicit between the governmental economic agenda that follows and the moment that we're in. And what I mean by that is, for example, when we see them peddling out the inevitable austerity narrative, we start to make these links between who's most directly impacted by that, that when we see their response to having funded the NHS, more leading to them kind of cutting the budget, cutting education budgets, et cetera, et cetera, that we continue to make these links and that we have specific policy demands as well that really emphasize that what we meant when we said no more, what we meant when we said Black Lives Matter is exactly this, is exactly these changes. And I think that is also the work of us as the left, right? Yes, yes, I agree. And I I feel like to some extent because of COVID and what that's done in a range of ways, we're in a suspended moment but that there's hell coming down the line and we're going to need to be ready for it because we're going to catch it in a way that other people don't. That also means creating allies, expanding the demands of this moment. It's a bit like with the COVID. It's like, well, in the short term, what we need is PPE, test and trace. That will save black lives. It'll also save white lives. That kind of our demands for better policing, for a accurate assessment of our history, for a range of things, aren't demands specific to black people. The demands black people are making, but we would all benefit from that because it's not just us that's going to catch hell. It's not even us that's just catching hell now. Mm. Okay. So, Gary, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. As always, it's been a massively enlightening conversation and I'm sure it will be for the listeners as well. If people want to find out more about your work, they want to hear more, read more, where should they go? Uh, GaryYoung.com. It's my website. Yeah, just go there. It's all there. Brilliant. All right. Thanks for tuning in. Lovely listening to this very special episode. That is it for today's Weekly Economics podcast. We'll be back soon with our new series. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Neff on Twitter. The Weekly Economics podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe.